time you turn in your Bibles to Micah 7, um, because God's Word is holy and powerful, uh, we at this time will stand to give honor to the Lord who has given us His Word. Uh, Micah 7, we'll start reading in verse 18 through verse 20. begins with an awesome question. Verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Our glorious God, thank you for this awesome and encouraging word. And we pray that you would bless us to rejoice in your unchanging love this evening that we would wonder and exalt you and that we would say with a resounding yes that there is no God like unto you, for you are the only and true living God. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I love um, this notion of rhetorical questions. Um, it's something that is used way more than I thought. I, I didn't realize that there was actually at least three classes of rhetorical questions. I'm not going to bore you by going into all of these, but um, a rhetorical question is something where there's an obvious answer to what is being asked. Um, one type of rhetorical question um, is making a statement and I'm going to explain it like this. Let's say I go with my kids to a place called uh, Pizza Shack in, in, in um, what's this name of this town? Bunky, Louisiana, Pizza Shack. And they have these little machines where they have these claws, and the claws reach down and grab toys, and you, you put money into it, and you, you, know, you put lots of money into it, and they keep bringing toys. And if, my, if I let my kids, they could spend an amazing amount of money playing these machines. So I might ask the question, do you think money grows on trees? Well, the answer is obvious. We know that money doesn't grow on trees. But I'm, what I'm telling my kids is that I really think you're wasting money because you're acting as if money's growing on trees. Well, today we have a rhetorical question and it is one of the most magnificent rhetorical questions in all of Holy Scripture. Who is a God like you? What a wonderful question. But before we go to the answer there, let's look a little bit more at the context of what Micah is saying and the prophecy of Micah. This, this section that we've read this evening is very encouraging and fantastic. However, not all of the book of Micah is very encouraging. If you look at some of um, 
what was read uh, um, last Lord's Day. Let's look a little bit earlier. Um, verse 16, nations will see and be ashamed. This is about God revealing himself and what he's going to do. Nations will, sh- will see and be ashamed of all of their might. They will put their hand over their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord, our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Why is that language there? Because God is a God to be feared. And there will be a day when Christ returns where the nations will dread it. They will say, let the mountains fall on us rather than have us suffer under the wrath of the Lamb. Because God has given to his son that great privilege to sit on his throne and he will judge the nations. And he will demonstrate himself to be the loving God to all who put their faith in him. But for those who reject him, his wrath will cause them to tremble. Um, This book does tell us a little bit about the coming Messiah. Earlier in this prophecy, it tells us that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. This particular prophecy is the one that gives us that information. And it also tells us that the, the one who will be Messiah will be a great ruler, and he will be the source of our peace. Peace between man and God, because Jesus Christ will reconcile us through his work. And for those of us who have faith, he has already reconciled us. So again, let's look a little bit more at this rhetorical question. We'll, we'll see um, this sermon in two main points. Who is like our God? And also, secondly, we'll look at the depths of God's love. Who is like our God and then the depths of God's love? Let's look at this rhetorical question in more in depth. Who is like our God? Uh, Verse 18 gives us reasons why our God is like no other in the whole of all creation. Verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? So the question is, God is amazing because he pardons iniquity and passes over sin, you could say. But the one place I want us to look at that gives us a little bit more glimpse in God's nature in in pardoning iniquity is found uh, in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Let's turn there. Exodus 33, um, starting verse 18. Now, you might ask yourself, well, isn't it arrogant of Moses to ask this question? Let me see your glory, O God. Well, I, I think we should all ask, O Father, reveal to us in this your holy word your glory. We should ask that question. But here's Moses, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, 
You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come to pass about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So he's going to rewrite the, the Ten Commandments. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not gaze in front of that mountain. So he cut two, stab two tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to, the, to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took the two tablets in his hands. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Okay, so we just read earlier in Micah seven eighteen that God pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. Now, we also read here that God says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So how can God remain infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness and his justice, yet pardon sin? Wouldn't he be unrighteous to leave the guilty unpunished? So what's the basis? What's the answer? I think, really, if, if I was an Old Testament prophet, I probably wouldn't know the answer. However, on this side of the cross, I think we're given the most glorious answer, and the answer is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at Romans 3. Romans 3, starting at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's a sacrifice that turns away wrath. A propitiation 
in his blood through faith, which was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works. No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. All right, so how is it that God can pass over iniquity? How is it that God can pass over our sin and still remain just? Well, it says here, he can remain just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because God didn't just pass over the sin. He laid the sin upon another, even his own son. Jesus Christ, our Lord, became that propitiation, that turning away of the wrath due to us. So when Micah asked this question, he asked this question of God's greatness and says, Who is a God like you? He's asking it not knowing the full measure of what God's love and depth of his love is in forgiving sinners. Namely, that he was going to send that Messiah, the one born in Bethlehem, to suffer and die for our sins. And even more so that we have the fullness of revelation. Even more than what the apostles had at their time. We have that fullness of revelation given in the whole entire canon of Holy Scripture. Revealing and pointing to us the true, full, complete nature of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, I would say this. Where we are in redemptive history gives us greater cause, even than Micah had, to ask this wonderful, blessed rhetorical question, who is a God like our God? And the answer is no one. There's none like him. Further proof Micah gives of God's greatness is found at the end of verse 18. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Now, my wife and kids can probably testify to this, but I hope you don't have to ask them. But sometimes people are kind of fickle, which, you know, sometimes one day you're kind of, you're loving and affectionate, and then the other day you're kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Not so much. Moody. You're kind of moody. Yeah, you're, you're not so loving and affectionate. Maybe you're a little aloof, like a cat. You know, you know how cats are. They, they want to come up one day, you want to pet them, and the other day they want nothing to do with you. I mean, I'm not like that, but I mean, you know, we, we're, we're kind of, we can be like that, can't we, right? Um, I think that's the nature of sin. But Lord willing, as we get more sanctified, we're more level-headed, and we're not having all these ups and downs, but we're more steady, more the same, hopefully, Lord willing. But God's not like that. God's not having ups and downs, loving one day and then not. God says here 
in his word through Micah that he delights in unchanging love. Our God is a God of unchanging love because he changes not. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, God's love is not fickle like ours. God's love doesn't change. If you are in Christ, God's wrath for your sins have been laid upon Jesus. And his love for you will be steadfast even until the last breath you take. Because Jesus has already taken the penalty of your sin. He has been a propitiation, the sacrifice which turns away the Father's wrath. So hopefully you have a greater understanding here of this question, who is a God like our God? A greater appreciation for this magnificent, glorious rhetorical question. But there's even more. Today's text tells a bit of the depths of God's love. Verse 19 says, he will again have compassion on us. Now, the Hebrew word for compassion here could be translated as love. It could be translated as pity or maybe mercy. Um, I didn't grow up as a Roman Catholic. I didn't grow up as one who read God's word, and I didn't ever read it on my own. My family never read it. So when I first began attending a Presbyterian church, when I heard this particular psalm, Psalm 103, I want us to turn there, I, uh, I was kind of taken aback because when I heard this, it was amazing to me. Let's start at verse 8. So I, I was at this Presbyterian church at a prayer meeting. I think it was on a Wednesday night and there wasn't that many people there. But it, this is the passage that the pastor had read. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as the flower of the field, he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no more. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. (coughs) Excuse me. So, I remember being in this Presbyterian church, and I heard this for the first time. And I, you know, I I didn't make a big scene or anything, but I kind of was, you know, shedding some tears a little bit. And, you know, I I was trying not to really be obvious and show it, you know. But they had this guy in the Presbyterian church who was kind of looking at me with this 
disdain. Man, look at this guy. He's probably charismatic. He's crying and cheering. Anyway, I'm there. so I was rejoicing in God's compassionate love, but this guy was having a problem with it. So, anyway, you can do that in a Presbyterian church if you have to, if you, if you read something that really moves you. But uh, I'm not going to stop preaching and glare at you. So, what grips us is that God has compassion for sinners such as us. I don't know about you, but I think you need compassion. I need compassion. We need God's mercy. Because without God's mercy, we're hopeless. Verse 19, it foretold what God was going to do through his beloved son. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, why do you tread something underfoot? Typically, it's because you want to destroy something. Maybe it's a bug, and you really don't want it in your house, and you trample it, and you throw it out. God trampled our iniquities, our sin. He trampled them underfoot. How did he do that? In the book of Isaiah, talks about the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being was laid upon him. And through his scourging, his whipping, he was, we are healed. God trampled on his own son for our sake. Through his sovereign plan, he crushed his own son so that we would be forgiven and healed. He did that for you. If you love him and you have faith in Christ, your sins have been trampled under the foot of God through the person of Jesus Christ. It says here, even more glorious, he has cast all their sins, our sins, into the depths of the sea. I was doing some studying on this a little bit. The, the average depth of the sea is 2.3 miles. And there is one place called the Challenger Deep. It's actually um, it's more than that. It's actually 6.78 miles deep, the deepest part of the ocean. Imagine God casting our sins into that Challenger Deep so deep that it's so dangerous to even go down there. You think going down to look at the Titanic would be dangerous? And it was. People died doing it recently. But going down to the depths of 6.78 miles is extremely dangerous. It's Our sins being cast to this great depth, they're unable to be recovered. They're as far as the east is from the west, you could also say, as Scripture tells us. Finally, the depths of God's covenant love are demonstrated in verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Now, hopefully, it's not habitual, 
and hopefully it's not your some something you're comfortable with but sometimes we don't always keep our promises in the way that we ought god always always keeps his promises especially the promises made to the to the fathers the covenant heads such as abraham in genesis 17 god said this to abraham I will establish my covenant between me and you and between your descendants after you throughout all the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So God made this great promise that he would give Abraham a magnificent, immense inheritance of seed through the seed, singular, Jesus, and then in Acts 2, when Peter's preaching his Pentecost sermon, he says, repent and believe and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he repeats the same promise made to Abraham, saying that for the promise, that is the promise of salvation, is to you and to your descendants after you, to your children after you, who all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Abraham, even by the revelation of God, looked forward unto Jesus. Abraham looked forward unto the coming Messiah. Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham looked forward to my day and was glad. He saw the coming of Jesus, that seed through whom the blessing would come to all nations. God has shown us wonderful things in this text. That God is a great God far above all else. That there is none like Him. You, you listen to these people who say, oh well, the God, of, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, the God of the Muslims, the God of uh, the Buddhists, they're all just one way to get to the same God. That's garbage. The only true God is the one who reveals himself in, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through his Holy Scripture. The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of our promises, the God who demonstrates himself through this holy, blessed, wonderful gospel. Let's pray together. We thank you, O oh Father, that you have revealed to us wonderful things in this, your word. Help us to rejoice in how you demonstrate to us that you are one like no other, that you are the only God, the great and glorious God, who forgives iniquity and even tramples our sin underfoot even through the person of your only begotten son thank you for your holy gospel thank you for the love that you've set upon us through jesus our lord and help us to rejoice in what you have done and what you continue to do for our sakes for we ask all these things in the name of jesus our lord amen this time we'll turn to 459 and saying, my hope is built on nothing less.